Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And this week we're covering Keyflower. Woo! <laughs> I'm surprised to hear you excited for it, Jake, because I feel like I dragged you into this kicking and screaming, but maybe that was a, a sarcastic woo. It's going to be a fun conversation regardless. Okay, well, ominous and exciting. <laughs> I feel like that leaves us all with a little bit more to sort of dive into as we kick things off. But for all of our pre-planners out there, I want to let you know that next week we'll be covering Steffenfeld's Bruges, a game that Jake will not be saying, woo to, but <laughs> woo to, <laughs> one of his favorite games of all time. And I've been uh, playing it a bunch lately on Yukata, and I'm excited to discuss it with Jake. I think there's a, a lot going on in the game. So if you want to try it out before we cover it, now's your chance. Hop onto Yukata, Yukata, give it a try. It's pretty quick to learn. There's a lot going on, though. Yeah, don't and don't be confused. It may be pronounced Bruges, but it looks like Bruges. Yes, B-R-U-G-E-S. <laughs> <laughs> awesome well let's jump right into it jake i'm gonna make you give your your rating and slogan first oh boy. all right here we go uh brendan i hope we can still be friends after this uh just vicious teardown of classic beloved game keyflower all right keyflower is weird but not delightfully so <laughs> Players will find themselves getting tripped up by the threads of interwoven mechanisms more than they'll be able to dig their teeth into them. While the game is unquestionably interesting and works as a strategy game, <laughs> I've encountered works. more moments of frustration than fun. And I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. Oof, no promises <laughs> on still being friends. <laughs> Keyflower is a bit of an enigma. It's a game packed to the brim with interlocking systems and ideas. Sometimes these systems are surprisingly sharp and delightful, like a trip to the fair on a nice spring day. And other times they can feel you a bit like Jake, uh, unwieldy and bog the game down, like taking a trip to the timber yard in winter. I admire Keyflower. It's a game that throws <laughs> cautionary design principles to the wind. And in the end, it's unique. Uh-oh, we used that word twice. Engaging and smart. However, in seemingly trying to do something for everyone, it will likely miss the mark for many. Eight out of ten. So unlucky 13 between the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, I think your uh, you know, slogan and, and review is completely fair. Uh, and I and I think, you know, obviously a lot of people like this game, but it's a subjective marker. Uh, and yeah, just at the end of the day for me, I found it slightly boring, a kind of like take it or leave it, uh, type of deal. Uh, not that it's not that it's bad, but just not one that I would seek out to play again and again. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I'm sure we'll get into more of why exactly you feel that way. I do wonder if this might be a game that you, so we've primarily played it on Board Game Arena. And I yes. wonder if playing it at the table would have produced a different feeling for you. I suspect not, because I think you're very much a mechanics driven player. Like your experience of games so much matter on like what is going on in the systems. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? I, I definitely think I wanted to bring that up. Uh, so I've played this exclusively on Board Game Arena, and all my plays except for one have been asynchronous. And as we'll get into it in the game, it has a, a significant mechanism of memory, really. Um, and that is going to be really challenging when playing asynchronously, especially. Um, 
And that was one of the things I found just kind of like frustrating. I don't, I don't believe that sitting over the table, all of a sudden I would have perfect information of, of everybody's supply of meeples behind their player boards. But I think that would enable me to sort of into it more when making decisions instead of feeling like more or less it's kind of a crapshoot whether I'll be able to be somebody can outbid me or not. Sure. And I think we'll definitely get more into that mechanic as we go, because I know anyone who's ever played or heard about Keyflower is going to have opinions on it and want to hear our thoughts on it as well. Um, but just to give the background of the game, it's designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Breeze. It was published in 2012 by R&D Games, which is Richard Breeze's company. And I think interestingly, Jake, sometimes we've covered games on the show and we've said, wow, this game feels like it could have been designed uh, a few years ago or even now. And I think in looking back to me playing Keyflower in some ways feels like an earlier game than a game published in 2012, just in the things that it's doing and its approaches, which is intriguing. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, early or, you know, yeah. I don't know if it feels like it, it was done like long ago, but it definitely feels dated in some ways, I would sure. say. Sure. Maybe even I'm thinking like, oh, I wouldn't be surprised if this was, you know, being worked on starting in 2008 or something. Yeah. Oh, uh, sure. It, so it plays two to six players, which is pretty interesting for a game uh, with the mechanics that are packed in here. That's a lot of potential room that the game has to accommodate in terms of system um, system flexibility in a way. Uh, those are really different player counts. You don't see a lot of euros that play two to six players. And interestingly, I noticed on... BGG, I was just, I wanted to glance at the mechanisms list because Jake and I were talking about, oh, it's going to be really tough to talk about Keyflower because there's so many different mechanisms. And I think there's 15 total listed in the mechanism section. Uh, so I'm just going to read them out. Yeah, it's please. Be funny. Auction bidding, auction fixed placement, constrained bidding, end game bonuses, hexagon grid, modular board, multiple lot auction, Network and root building, ownership, set collection, tile placement, turn order auction, variable setup, worker placement, worker placement, different worker types. <laughs> so that does a good job of sort of explaining some of why Jake was saying, like, this game is going to trip up newer players. And to be wife, fair, though, like seven of those were just auction. <laughs> seven of them were just auction and two of them were worker placement. But there's lots of little twists on other yeah. things. When I think another, if you've never played Keyflower, my wife, when I was recording this and told her, Jake, that we were going to be playing Keyflower, she said to me, oh, you found someone else you could rope into playing that crappy game. <laughs> <laughs> because I've actually been playing Keyflower and trying to get Maya to play Keyflower with me since it was my like third uh, modern board game that I picked up. So I think I it's important people know that I have this strange fondness for this game as an earlier system that I experienced. I think we talked about that some last week. Um, but know that it it's kind of a gnarly a gnarly little machine. But we should say that collectively, the board game enthusiast community is on your side and not Maya and mine, uh, because this game is ranked into the top 100 games, right? It's like sitting in the 70s or something. Yeah, as of this recording, ranked 78 on Board Game Geek. So, so. certainly, you know more. And, and it might be one of those ones that like the people that seek this out and they're like, that sounds fun is like a self-selecting group that is like yeah nine, nine out of 10 of those people are going to love it. And, you know, perhaps the, the people who are getting roped into the games 
maybe our, our <laughs> the ones not self-selecting into it might find it a little bit more uh, challenging to to dig into. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, Jake. And I I want to talk does, to you. Go for I, it. I just want to say, just last on that, it does. It feels like when you look through the top one hundred games mm-hmm. on Board Game Geek, this one feels like anomalous to like the rest of them. I'm not really sure why it is, but like it just you know you've got so much like it maybe it's like has to do with the art assets or, or the the time it was published um but it, it just feels like a little bit like it, you know, it's impressive that's hanging on there it feels anomalous to the rest of the list in, in ways it's hard for me to just like really concisely put into words i think part of that too for me is the audacity of the design it does so much that it's sort of like i said in my synopsis it's throwing caution to the wind like many things that people say not to do in game design because they're not going to lead to potentially the best experiences. It tries to do them and say, this is the best way to do it. And I think it's going to create an interesting play experience. Yeah. Um, so if you haven't played Keyflower, we don't want to leave you behind. So that's uh, let's go to a quick synopsis that we pre-prepared. And we'll be right back with you after that to delve more into the game. And it's our thoughts on it. Interdecisional spaceship. Run the audio log for... Uh, rules overview, Keyflower. Keyflower is a worker placement auction game in which your workers are your bidding currency. Over the course of four rounds, spring, summer, fall, and winter, players use their workers to bid for tiles introduced at the start of each round. These tiles are either worker placement locations, unique player abilities, or endgame scoring conditions. And if a player places the winning bid on a tile at round end, they add that tile to their own personal village. Bidding for tiles or activating tiles with workers follows the same rules. Players place one or more of their worker meeples of the same color into a location to either bid for or activate the tile, then in subsequent rounds, other players may bid for the tile or activate the tile by placing meeples of the same color into that location or to bid for it, but must place at least one more worker than what's currently there and in a matching color. So if a player bids one red to start, two red must be used to outbid, then three red, and so on. Workers in Keyflower come in four colors, red, blue, yellow, and green. Green meeples are special meeples that players may only gain access to through utilizing specific tiles, making them particularly powerful. As a twist, players may activate tiles currently being bid on by other players, and players may activate worker placement locations in other players' villages as well. However, both of these options come at a cost, as workers used in another player's village will go to that player at round end, and meeples on worker placement locations currently being bid for go to the winner of that bid. When adding tiles won in the auction phase to your village, players must match roads or fields shown on tiles already in their village. On top of all of this, there's a resource production logistics puzzle in which players transport resources along roads in their village to upgrade or score additional points at game end based on the tiles added to their village. There's a lot happening in the bustling game of Keyflower. So as always, having a quick look at the game components or how to play a video will give you an even better sense for the game. Thank you, Interdecisional Spaceship, for that. I really quickly, before we jump into the discussion, I want to just note, uh, make a quick note about the theme, which I think is a particularly not exciting theme and also a particularly kind of lazy theme. And it is this sort of settler colonial theme. 
And this game could have been themed anything. I would be so much more interested if Keyflower was a space game where you were actually like building out networks of your like space station and you're collaborating as you're exploring a galaxy with these different like groups who are doing the same thing. But instead we have this like quaint, oh, it's a little play on a little pun on the word Mayflower, which it's like barely a pun. Like that is a like a low effort <laughs> pun. <laughs> like I think and I mean, you could play this game. I think the first time I played this game, which was before, uh, you know, preparing for this podcast, it was a few years ago. I just tried it out on BGA because of how highly rated it was. Like, I did not even make that connection because the Mm. game is just so abstract. That's like, oh, it's like a flower because you're like growing up a little town or whatever. Like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there are there are boats in it. So and I mean, like, obviously, like the word Mayflower, the fact that that is like a pun does invoke colonialism. Uh, But, you know, and not I guess not to like excuse that completely. But like this game is so abstract that I don't feel like I'm playing a colonialist game Mm -hmm. or a colonialist simulation at all when I'm playing this. Yeah, that's it, it. And I think that is just because like what you're saying, Jake, it's so abstract that you barely even think about the theme once you yeah, start. It playing. might as well be an abstract game. Yeah, it, it, it. Yeah, I kind of wish it was. But given the fact that we're having this discussion of theme, what we're going to take it in a completely different direction for the podcast and do something a little bit more thematic. So woo. the feedback on that's the my last second week, woo. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the episode of woos. Um, the Arnak episode, we did exploring Arnak and we sort of did this cool worker placement exploration where I didn't tell Jake what we'd be discussing and he had five different worker placement auctions or action selection spots that he could pick and then that would be the thing driving our discussion. So this time we're going to explore the key village and I'll be giving Jake those actions. Key village, great pun you made there. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Thank you. It took me all week for that one. Um, so I'll read Jake the five options. You can think about what we might be discussing when they're picked, and Jake doesn't know what we'll be discussing. And uh, so the options are, and he's going to pick one, and then that will drive the discussion. The options are check out the timber yard, draw water from the well, see what the peddler has for sale, stop in the tavern, and admire the windmill. I want to start in the tavern. You know, I just think, I don't know why, but it seems like maybe we hit the tavern first. That could make the rest of these uh, opportunities a little bit more enjoyable for no reason. No reason at all. Interesting. Interesting. I'm on board. Let's go to the tavern first thing. So that is actually going to be the town building systems and logistic. Oh, boy. So that's an interesting place to start. But I think it's apropos of the game of Keyflower that we're not going to start with the auction bidding system or the worker placement system, but we're going to talk about what you're actually doing with tiles once you acquire them. And everyone starts with a single tile in front of them. It's their home tile, and it allows you to do a few things when used. Uh, It's also a worker placement spot. So if you play a meeple onto it, you get to move resources twice and upgrade two locations. Um, and whenever you, Jake, help me out if I'm losing track here, but I just want to like make sure to give people a quick reminder of everything going on here. Uh, in the game of Keyflower, when you are bidding on tiles, 
that are in the middle of the board between all players. If you win those bids, you take those tiles and add them to your village at the end. And they all have different paths on them. So yeah. you have to make sure those paths at least align with each other or the grassy side on them are aligning. And the way in which you build your village can really matter with how you're moving resources between different tiles as you produce on them, or if you produce in someone else's village, those tiles will come, those resources will come to your own home tile. So you wanna be sure to have quick paths between key locations. Yes. And having said that. Uh, this is your captain speaking. <laughs> we are now approaching a uh, little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. <laughs> I just wanted to get that out of the way early on. <laughs> so are you saying the rest of the podcast is just turbulence? No, <laughs> but this part of the game in particular, I have some issues with. It just feels like of all the interwoven mechanisms in this game, like this kind of logistical puzzle layered on top of it is perhaps the area where i feel like the rules overview like the rules overhead um it's not like enormous but it is more rules but just the kind of the payoff for it creates more moments of frustration than moments where you're like yes uh, that feels really clever and i think part of that is it there's a a big barrier of entry here uh, because you you kind of need to know what is possible to to come out at the end of the game uh some of the scoring like end of game scoring conditions might be like having the longest kind of continuous uh circle of tiles where you can like trace a path along your roads without like doubling them and that could be worth points to you at the end of the game so you might want to think about that you might want to think about like creating a spot where you can put a single tile where it'll be like completely surrounded at the end of the game but also you want to think about uh, you know, positioning your tiles in such a way that like the area where you're co collecting resources is close to tiles that you might want to deposit them on for end of game scoring or to upgrade your tiles in the end of the game. And ultimately it just creates uh, this kind of tangled mess of mechanisms where it's like very easy to trip over yourself and make yeah. mistakes, you know, but it never feels great. You know, it doesn't have, to me, it doesn't have that moment like in, in Carcassonne, which has similar, you know, network of roads where you, you're put in a piece and you're like, that feels good. You're, I always felt like, okay, I guess I'll just kind of like do this. And, you know, based on what might come out at the end of the game, which you don't even know over the course of placing them in many cases, it might work out or it might not. You know, it just it just left me wanting, I think. I think that that's really fair because the the opportunity for mistakes, feel bad mistakes that kind of lead to what can feel like a thrown away game compared to the potential for for what you're talking about, the sort of the perfect moment where you're placing a tile just where you want it. You didn't even know you'd get the tile and it pays off in this huge way and it's really exciting that seems to justify the system just isn't there. And it makes it really hard for newer players who don't know what tiles could be coming out and how they're supposed to place them. So it really is, Keyflower is a game designed to be played 10 times, not have a good experience the first time, because you're not going to have a good experience the first time. You know, There's and that, just to go back to our earliest, earlier conversation in the episode, that might be the big distinction between this game and what is so common on the 
top hundred games. Like they all seem to cater to maybe I, I shouldn't say all, but any more, you know, new games coming out are really catering that first play experience. And even older games like Castles of Burgundy, something like that, it's still going to be like a ton of fun. Your first play, you're still going to feel like, oh, I, I did well and accomplished a lot. And Keyflower is, is just not that way at all. Yeah, I feel like a common thread as we've talked about Eurogames throughout so many of our episodes, though we're not specifically a Eurogame podcast, but they make ripe discussion, I think, for our lens of decision space, is how how tight are the rails on mm-hmm. the game, right? Like, how much is it willing to let your player go off in a different direction? Like, a game like Arnak, the rails are fairly tight, but not too crazy so it's keeping you moving all in the same direction and then there was something like we covered you know grand austria hotel where the rails aren't quite as much there there's a little bit more room and i think keyflower maybe takes it a little bit too far where you're just you're wandering in seamlessly you could be wandering in any direction and you can make game ending mistakes and i think that the sort of where you're completely out of the running for having ruined your your placement and that feels bad. I don't think that should be possible. And maybe a critic would say the onus is on other players at the tables who know the game better to help that player not make those bad decisions. I don't feel the need to discuss that too much more after our last discussion. But I will say, as an apologist for the game itself in some ways, this tile placement is what drew me in and I think endeared me to the game early on because I like the ritual of building a little town. I like seeing it grow. I like having the paths fit together, but I agree in a game design perspective, it just doesn't come together. And it just, it even subverts itself. We can get into this more later, but there's tiles that can come out during the season. So your normal round bidding before winter that you'll get points. Like there's a lumber yard. For every uh, one of the pieces of lumber that you can move into your lumber yard, you'll get like two points, or if it's upgraded three, it might be one and two. It's something like that. But those it reward you if you can get them physically on the tile. So that's the logistics puzzle. But in the winter scoring, a lot of those say, oh, if you have one of each of these four resources, you know, like iron and what that, I don't, it's so abstract, uh, brown, black, and gray, then you get five points for them. And you don't have to get them onto this winter tile. You just have to have them anywhere in your village and assign them here. So I feel like the game just sort of says, oh, you don't really have to worry about it if you don't want to. You could worry about it. But I think the way the game signposts during play, it's like, oh, I should be worrying about this. And then the winter tiles come out. It's like, oh, I should be worrying about that. So it can feel a little bit jerky. And you mentioned this too, Jake, in terms of signaling. The game just, you felt like, wasn't really signposting much to you. No, not not in the initial plays at all. And I think, you know, just to touch on our, you know, to not get too far down in, into reviewing territory and, and think about like the decisions here. I think that is that this part of the game in particular is a place where there are legitimate decisions to make, but that won't be apparent to you until you've played three or four times. Other than that, it just feels like choices right i'll just put this tile over here like it fits here that's fine and then you realize later in the game you're like well i've really messed that up but i couldn't have you know and that's what made me so frustrated in the especially in those first couple plays it's like i couldn't have known i was messing that up because like i didn't have you know knowledge of the possible tiles that could have come out later definitely it's tough to plan when you don't know what you're planning for and keyflower doesn't really solve that and i just think Yeah, and just, like, with so much other things going on, and, like, we'll get into it, but, like, so much information that this game asks you to, like, try to keep in your head, 
I don't mm. want to have to think about potential tiles that might come out later as I'm placing. It just seems like going right back into reviewing territory, <laughs> it could have been a game, like this mechanism could have been streamlined in a way like, even if you want to have a logistic puzzle, uh, a, a game like Isle of Sky kind of has that where you have like sort of like factory things for better where they're like producing and you want to like connect it to like villages via road but that's sort of like all happening passively without you like actually having to like do active movements of of, you know activating tiles moving stuff around that's sort of it just makes you wonder like well what's like the actual game here you Mm. know it's pulling it in such a different direction Sure. The, I, the one criticism of that might be the idea that they do reward you for upgrading tiles, and that is a major source of potential points. So the game does go out of its way to incentivize you to do it, but I, I do think that there's so many barriers in the way of you doing that. Also quickly mention that there's an expansion that utilizes the space in between roads as fields for uh, adding animal animal meeples to, um, but we're not going to cover that in the scope of this show. and. But it's just another way that you can add even more systems and complexity to Key Flower. So that's, I feel like, Jake, with that, we've kind of had our drink at the tavern. Uh, what should we what should we do next? Do you want to check out the timber yard? Draw yeah, water was, from the well? What, that, was a, that was a fraught uh, stop in at the tavern. Yeah. <laughs> let's, I, see, <laughs> let's see if it goes a little better. Uh, you, know, you know, we had a drink there. It's always good to kind of mix it. You know, I like to have like a water after a drink, you know, don't want to get hung over or whatever. So let's let's head over to the well and, and just get see if we can uh, get a palate cleanser. Awesome. That sounds great. I'd love to get some water. Hopefully it's a good well and it's going to be potable water. With that, uh, you've chosen worker placement systems and bidding. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh boy indeed and because i explained the, the last one i'm gonna allow you the fine fine uh dignified opportunity and pleasure of oh boy everyone about the worker placement and bidding systems it's like show you show up at work today and they're like oh by the way you get to like present on how to <laughs> how the bidding works in Keyflower. it's like my nightmare okay so basically the way that the worker placement and bidding works in this game is there are four different colors of workers in the game. These are meeples that you can bid with. There's three primary colors, which happen to be the primary colors and yeah, red, yellow, and blue. And then there are also green workers, which you can get through various actions in the game. And those are rare and more valuable. And the way it works is you can place on your turn one or more workers onto the side of the hexagonal tile in the in the kind of auction row, the available tiles facing you. So that indicates that like you're bidding on it. And if at the end of the round, you have the most workers bid on that tile, then you get to claim that and add it into your area. Uh, you can also choose to activate workers, or activate tiles in the same way by using a worker to place it right on top, and then you get to do whatever action that tile says. Importantly to note, you can activate any tile in the game, ones that are up for auction currently, ones that are in your town, and ones that are in your opponent's town. And finally, kind of the most important rule here is once a a tile has been activated with one type of 
worker color. Uh, that's the only type of color you can use on that for subsequent placement, barring a special tile that potentially breaks this rule. Uh, so if I bid a yellow worker on a tile, then Brendan has no choice if he wants that tile to bid a higher amount of yellow workers. Um, so that's that's pretty much how it goes. Is that what you wanted me to do to explain how it worked? Yeah, that was really well done. And okay. I, the only other little wrinkle I would say is if someone bids on a tile in the center. So at the start of each round, new tiles are put out. Uh, that's seasons in the game for bidding. And if someone bids on the tile with a color, then to activate it, you'll have to use the same color that has already been used to bid on mm. it and vice versa. So a lot of what's going on in Keyflower and why I think this is probably going to be the best chance for us too, Jake, to get into some of the memory aspects of this game that can be really frustrating for you is that at the start of each game, each player actually gets a selection of meeples blindly from the bag workers. And those are from those three primary colors that Jake mentioned. I don't know the exact number, but it's a decent amount. It's like eight or something. Yeah, it's like eight. Uh, and then each player actually in the physical version of the game has these really adorable little houses that work as player shields for them that they put their little worker meeples into and it hides uh, the meeples that they have. So you can't be sure at the outset of the game what type and color of workers other players have. And in Keyflower, workers are currency forbidding and currency forbidding are workers. So it's a highly, highly... Uh, Interloop, interlocking system, it's very tightly coupled, right? It's it's trying to be, that's like the clever jump off point for the game. Like what if your currency was your worker placement bidding? So that's the crux of the game. That's where the game is trying to create the most interesting decisions. And that's the core tension from which it would like to justify all its other systems. Yeah, I mean, from a decision space perspective, this is like where the decisions in my mind are having like, and this is why this game is so interesting. And there is a ton uh, that goes into it. But one, one of the things that one of the areas which I find like really fascinating is kind of the trade-off, uh, right? Because there, there are like trade-offs happening on multiple levels here, right? First, any worker that you bid is one less action. Well, not, it's not necessarily one-to-one because when you take an action, you have to, increase the amount uh so if i take an action the first time anyone takes an action on it it's one meeple and then the second time it has to be two of that same color and then three and so on and so forth so it's not exactly one-to-one -one, but every time you're bidding that's less actions you're taking uh which is you know how a big way of scoring points in the game it's accruing resources for upgrading your tiles it's getting more workers or, or whatever uh, so that's a trade-off. But also, if if you bid a worker to take an action on your opponent's board, then that's uh, that worker kind of goes into their supply at the start of the next round. Similarly, if you bid, or sorry, if you take an action placing a worker on one of the available tiles for auction, uh, and your whoever wins that tile gets that worker at the end of the thing. So you can it makes the tiles functionally more valuable if somebody takes an action on them because it not only are you getting that tile to add but you're gaining an extra worker as well and that's kind of one of the ways that you it feels like you can have plays that feel like bingos in this game mm. which which i think is probably one of my overall big criticisms is it doesn't feel like there are very many moments where you're really able to get a bingo 
you know, that's what we talked about previously. But if you can set it up in such a way that, you know, you bid on a tile in the middle and are able to win the auction, that feels like pretty great. Or if your opponent takes an axe in the middle and you're able to like sort of swoop in and steal their worker, uh, that feels really cool too. And so just like thinking through like plays to set up ways in which that can happen, you know, the decision space here gets really expansive. Definitely. And the ex- continuation of this is when you use your own meeples in your own village, you get to keep them. But then the whole idea of like, okay, if you can play meeples to anyone's tiles, you can block the tiles that other people have already taken the time to acquire and add to their village. But as compensation, they get to keep your workers for the next round. And I think that to me, the, the tactics of that feel very exciting at first, but there's also so much to look at that I find that often when I'm playing Keyflower, I'm incentivized mostly to focus on what I'm doing in my own little village and sometimes go to someone else's village, but only very rarely once or twice in a game. Um, and it's also, it's it's so tough to talk about Keyflower because everything's so interlocked. So when I talk about one thing, I want to talk about three other things. But I think partially I agree, Jake, that for me, this is the system that makes the game the most interesting and creates the most dynamic decisions where I'm having to having to make really hard judgment calls on, is it worth it? Okay, is it worth it to bid three on this tile? Should I start bidding for this tile at two yellow workers? Because you can opt to do that. You don't have to start at one of a, a meeple color. You can start higher. Is it worth it? If I know Jake probably wants this tile also, or at least is willing to bid on it um, and go to two to maybe force me to go to three, knowing I really need it based on my village. Is it worth it just to start at two, sort of calling Jake's bluff and saying, okay, well, you won't go to three, or will then he go to three and then I'd be forced to go to four when maybe he wouldn't. And I like that sort of double think of the game. I've done that a, a fair amount in some of our games, Jake. I think... It's worked out some of the times and and not in others where I've just sort of jumped to two um, because the incremental bidding feels like it matters so much more when the resources of your currency are pretty limited. Yeah. And we should also say if you get outbid on a tile. So any any workers that you've placed on a tile to take an action are sunk. They're there. But if you get outbid, any workers that you had previously bid on that, you can then reallocate to a different tile as action they, they essentially go back into your supply um and you can also and, take them back behind into your supply if you wanted to at round end right around and you could just leave them yeah um and i think that's really cool too because that's one thing i love in games is like when it allows players to faint and that mm. enables that you could bid one worker on a tile you don't want trying to like bait somebody into you know spending two of their workers you know, expending their resources in, in a way profitable to you, and then you just move it to somewhere else. Um, and so that's kind of a, a fun thing. The problem with this is the fact that, to me, in my subjective opinion, is that uh, all the workers are hidden information. Like, this system is so complex and interesting that it just doesn't feel like on top of all of the trade-offs and interesting decisions that go here uh, that go into making these decisions that you're also just always guessing how many workers of of various colors somebody might have available and it just like puts this like shadow of doubt over the whole game to the point where it's 
you never whenever you're making a choice here you'd almost never in my experience feel like hey that was like really smart mm. <laughs> because it it could almost always just be wrong it could be just i'm just wait right you put two there uh to bid for something but the other person didn't have any so that's just like wasting resources or somebody has you know happened to draw in their original eight uh workers six yellow you know, so you feel like really safe bidding or, you know, taking a second action on that, on a tile. And then, oh, I actually had four, all four of my workers in reserve yellow. So I'll just take that. And it's such a big blowout that the game is, you know, maybe just over for you in the first round or, you know, you're going to be fighting way back. And I don't, I mean, it definitely adds this like element of tension which I guess is exciting, but I felt like for a game as complicated and long playing as this, I mean, it's not a short game, right? Even playing async, like I, I feel like playing this in person is probably in the 90 minute plus territory. If not longer. Uh, if not longer. I felt like often in the game, I would come to a point where I had to make a gamble that was basically the game for me. Mm. Like, do I risk losing this tile? I desperately need to, you know, activate this action over here. That's going to get me like three or four points. And it's just like, you just can't know whether that is right or wrong. And I felt frustrated that the game was like asking me to make that choice. I think in that way, it kind of shows its age a bit more. It's, It's just a bit more uncompromising, than my sensitive sensibilities as a modern board gamer are used to. I think that there's also, it, in terms of the design, it was unwilling to compromise on this point uh, in, in the published version of the game, right? So you a design of Keyforge could have existed that, that wasn't... Keyflower. Key, oh my gosh, did I say Keyforge? I was <laughs> yeah. so worried about doing that. About Keyflower that, that could have taken a harder line in one direction or the other in terms of information about the worker meeples that your opponent might have. Uh, but it decided it wanted to have it both ways. So you start the game with hidden information about the meeples that you have. And this is really important because you don't have to technically spend all your meeples at the start of the game. So technically you could always have hidden information, but from that point on, Every other meeple that you're adding into the system. So another thing that you do at the end of each round is new boats arrive with new meeples on them and new workers. And those workers are placed directly on the tiles. So you're bidding on boats that you're going to add to your supply that have meeples of the three different colors intermixed. Uh, so you, this one might be, oh, there's lots of yellow meeples in this boat. And there's lots of red meeples in this in this other boat. And there's only one blue one here. So when you're playing on the table, you can sort of get a sense for like, oh, Jake just got an influx of six red meeples. So he's in this upcoming round going to have a lot of them. But hanging over this is the idea that because of the way that you're taking turns, basically the first player in a round is decided through bidding also. And then you just go in a circle and you can pass. But if you pass, you can also come back in so long as everyone else didn't pass, but you could technically pass without having spent some of your first workers, meaning that there's always this question of, did you spend all your workers, right? But after you can count everyone's workers in the first round, and then after that, so you it incentivizes you, maybe you don't want to spend all your workers in the first round so that you always have this question of, do you have meeples that people couldn't perfectly count? But it's like 
are you joking? Like, this is not yeah. worth it. The, the amount of that you're asking me to do in terms of work, the onus on the player is so high that why don't we just have the boats be like, in this boat, you get to pick four of the meeples of the color of your choosing and four are random. In this one, you get to pick three meeples of the color of your choosing and the rest are random. And a system like that could have accomplished the hidden information that you wanted, or let's just have everything be open information. And sure, there might be a little bit more analysis paralysis, but it will make the people who want to be able to make informed decisions, they can do that, right? Like that's, it can't be both. This is a system where you can't be both and it tries to be, and it's just saying to the player, like, just don't care as much. And it's like, no, yeah, I want to care. Or just be smart, just be smarter and like, <laughs> no, because technically you could, which I agree. It's like so frustrating, so much worse than if it was just all hidden and you're like, okay, I don't have to like try, but yeah, like you said, like, I don't want to count all the workers yeah. in, in the given game and you even that would be is like a little bit hard because let's say you bid some but also put some on tiles that doesn't really indicate who put those it workers on the tile yeah. so if you're playing like three or four game and there's several out on tiles i couldn't tell you necessarily with again without having like photographic memory uh whether you were the one who has you know two missing workers or uh you know somebody else we're playing with has two or maybe you both played seven of eight or whatever right so i i mean i don't think it's not possible to really do that and i don't think like and yet it's tremendously important right mm -hmm. the game feels as though the person who is better at calculating that or just like intuiting who has more of what worker is like hugely impactful in making decisions and if you like can't do that or perhaps like won't do that because you just don't want to spend your entire time with this game, like trying to like think, like, okay, how many workers do they have? Like, cause I, I just don't find that type of work particularly fun yeah. in general. Right. I find that the actual like making decisions part of games, like that's what I'm here for. So if you can't or won't track that, it just feels like you're at such a big disadvantage to somebody who might be like good at it or, you know, is going to spend their whole time. Like, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. I'm like thinking, I'm <laughs> trying to like keep all this information in my head at once. I don't know. It's, it's definitely a frustrating element, but we should say there is technically an official variant. The um, play yeah, that has you use open information. Like we were discussing where it's out in front of you. I think, I think the one I've seen is uh, once, once seen, always seen. So as, and so you still, still can keep that hidden information from the beginning of the game as long as you want. But all the workers that are coming in off of boats or returning to your supply are staying out in front of your player shield. Um, I know that's the way that a lot of people prefer to play this game. And uh, Richard Breeze, I believe, has like said, okay, like that. If that's how people are enjoying this more, then sure, that's like an that's official the game. variant. Yeah, sure. And that's not now necessarily how Jake and I have played it, just because that's not the implementation on Board Game Arena, and it's not how the rules are written in the box. But I think if that's how your group enjoys it, you should definitely play the game. I think I would way. enjoy it more that way. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it is great that Richard Breeze came in and sort of allowed the game to be a living one and, and to change it in that way, or to endorse the changes that have been made. Because I think people get all in their heads a little bit about games sometimes, and the best way to play a game is however you would like to play it. Yeah, I'm definitely team like house rule it if you want. <laughs> yeah, same. I mean, yeah. 
So I feel like that's been a lot of time drinking from the well, like I'm especially hydrated now. So what do you what do you want to do next, Jake? Do you want to admire the windmill? Let's admire you- it. Let's just take a break. Wow. It's a key it, mill. Oh, look at the key mill. It's just so beautiful. We're, we're, people who haven't played Keyflower won't know that we're being tongue-in-cheek here because everything in the game that can have any sort of close-to-key pun does, and that's sort well, of Richard Breeze's... And he has a whole series of games that are key whatever, like key, key harvest, key per. Yeah. Key, yeah. There's key a, to the city of London or something. <laughs> <laughs> That one doesn't even sound like a pun. I, I, I know. I, that's interesting. Okay, so. We should be clear. Should... These aren't puns. It's just putting key <laughs> in front of a word, okay? <laughs> this is an important distinction. This, I want the people to know that. <laughs> Good. Okay. It is written. These are not puns. So, admiring the windmill. Game end scoring slash winter tiles. So, this is a system that I think is very interesting in Keyflower, and one that I actually enjoy quite a bit. At the start of each round, each game, every player is dealt three winter tiles. Uh, so they can see those tiles. They, they know what the potential game-end scoring conditions that could exist in the game. And generally, these game-end scoring tiles that you're dealt, the winter tiles are some of the most point-rich tiles in the game. So they do give you a sign-poised post to sort of guide you in a potential direction. However, when you get to winter, players may choose to play all three of these tiles as to the center to be bid on, or they may choose just one, or they can play two of them. So they you have to play at least one, but you don't have to play all of your tiles. And this system gives the players some choice in sort of saying, okay, does this... Do I want this tile to be in the center for bidding or do I do do I not? And it also means, however, that the signposts that you might be aiming for, someone could outbid you for them in the end and you might not end up getting them. Jake, I feel like you're going to have a lot of thoughts on this system. Well, let's just acknowledge how like insane this system is from like a <laughs> modern board gaming sensibility, right? I mean... Th- end of like you know secret objective like end of game scoring are are things that are like so common and are a great way to signpost like you're saying like and and can direct players towards strategies but here that is just completely blown up by the the simple fact that like hey that end of game scoring that you've been working on the whole game well guess what there's like an open auction for it now and prop in many cases right in in function because everyone is sort of knows about theirs, at least in our, my initial plays, I found like typically people are kind of going for the one or or two that they put out onto the board. But again, I guess this is just another way that it's a very different game for people that are experienced because you might be like aware of, you know, all of them, all the possibilities and could like better craft a strategy that's like going for, a variety of different ones um, that might come out uh, so that you could really blow someone out by saying like, I think they're going to, they're going for this. I think they're going to play this. So I'm going to plan to steal it and perhaps put out a a goal of mine that doesn't really help anyone much. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's crazy. It, it blows my mind. And it's, it's another thing where it's like breeze is kind of saying, and you know, both designers, I shouldn't just say breeze. Um, it's just saying like, 
let's just make this decision space as huge and big as possible uh, at the expense of like any kind of restraint and direction to players. Right. Mm. It's a great example of where like there could be rails and the designers are saying like, no, like we don't need that. Let's just like make this insane. Well, and the decision that you're offered between you can play one or more of them up to all three is really interesting. And I haven't seen this mechanism in a lot of games because functionally this is a mechanism that's saying that players collectively at the table are having agency over what the average point value of end game scoring is going to be. If everyone plays all three of their tiles, the end game score will be significantly higher at the end of the game because the potential points is likely going to be larger. You do have to dis- assign different resources to different endgame scoring tiles. So this isn't always completely true. You can't just like get everything and get triple count, but on average, it's going to be higher. Likewise, if everyone plays one tile, the average points will be lower. So players going into the final round who have already built up a lot of points from say spring or summer tiles, where you're trying to store goods, they might have a lower incentive to play tiles to. And I think that sort of agency is really interesting. But the flip side is like Jake saying, it's so hard to wrap your mind around all of the different potential options. And I have found, I generally seem to have better playing games when I get a tile that I work towards and then win it rather than trying to stay flexible and open. And then when I see them out, make some bids and then use all my workers that I've stored up to do a bunch of work in that winter season to build towards that goal. It's just really hard to catch up, even though you have the most workers that you've ever had, um, to to catch up can be difficult. If you've planned going into winter, you're going to do better off than getting to winter and doing a bunch of work to try to catch up. Right. And also, right, in this end of the game, right, bidding on... Uh, goal right if you're going for one is so incredibly fraught because right you want to use as many actions as you can to build your points like to score off that so you're saying to yourself like okay i think three workers is enough so you know and somebody might be waiting or passing until the end and then they swoop in at the end and you've basically played a whole game for nothing Like, I haven't seen that happen, but I'm always, like, worried about it at the end of the Mm. game where I'm just like, man, this is going to really suck if somebody's doing this. But at a certain point, you have to make the choice if you want to be competitive in the game that, like, I can't afford to spend more workers bidding now because then I'm going to lose out on people that are doing more actions than me. So that's that's just, like, ah, you know, it's interesting. It's really challenging. It's a fun you know, uh, uh, inter- but it's like not a decision that feels fun. It's a decision that feels like stressful. <laughs> it's definitely stressful. And in that way, it might be one of the more thematic as- ways in which the game's thematically resonant because I think preparing for winter is stressful, right? Like in this time period that like we've said, it's very abstract and it is, but like that is one way in which it's asked, like sort of mimicking a t- potential version of a theme. Totally. Maybe, maybe I'm pushing for that, but yeah. And I mean, I guess like, I think we can kind of tie in a lot of the discussion and like criticisms about the decisions in this game that I've had into this, the point that like, you don't know how many end game scoring conditions could come out. Right. And without knowing that it's really difficult to have that influence decisions that you make throughout the game. Right. In the same way that it would, if 
you know, maybe everybody puts one out at the start of the game. Like these are the ones we'll be bidding for right now. That's like really going to be something you can use to like drive your choices throughout the game. But like without that, it's just another thing that kind of contributes to like the aimless feeling mm. you're going to have the first time you try this game. Um, and then that's like even like bidding tiles, right? And and also it's like the placement and like the actions, like all of that feels a lot more aimless without knowing what the end game con- scoring conditions are going to be until like the very last turn or the last round. And even then <laughs> you might get outbid for like what you think is going to be like your scoring condition. So it's just, you know, that there's just like this pervasive cloud of uncertainty over everything in this game mm. that makes, even though the decision space is, is really big and like the decisions on their own are all interesting. Right. The, the amount of like uncertainty makes to me, it just like, even though it's actually making the decision space bigger, right? It might be like getting too big to the point that like it detracts from like doing any one thing because you just don't know. It's hard to see the relationship between the decisions that you're making and watch a plan come to fruition and all the things that generally we like to experience when we play games. Yeah, or yeah, and it feels less like building up. Like how is placing this one tile here in round one going to impact my ability to like achieve some nebulous number of scoring conditions like i don't know so i'm just gonna place it here and like that i think is kind of especially in my first few plays of this game just like that is pretty much the experience even though i know there are smart decisions to be made i'm still just like making random choices i do wonder if it's the sort of game I'm not saying that I don't know that you will be the type of player who goes on with this, but I do think it's the sort of game where the more you give it, the more it's going to give back to you, which is really, especially if you're playing it with the same group. And I think one way in which I would like to defend the design of Keyflower is that there's so many games that don't exist like Keyflower. And I think one of the reasons that it does find itself coming up in conversations is because of that uniqueness. There's a place for it to exist for being different and doing what it's trying to do at least well enough that it's interesting. And that's really cool that, it, yeah. that it's that way. Like I mean, with the, yeah. Credit to the game that it works, you know, and I said that in my synopsis because this game is so insane that it's like a miracle that it does, you know, or not a miracle. Like, you know, it's hard work and, and a huge credit to the designers, but like, it's amazing that it does work as well as it does. And, and yeah. And at two to six players, like I mentioned yeah. earlier, like that's another way in which it's just sort of mind blowing that the, all of the systems work and the games do come out pretty close in terms of scoring. And I, I think part of that too, that ties into winter scoring that we'd be remiss not to mention. And then we'll hit up one more location, not to, we're going to have to strike one off of our visit for the list. But um, I think one thing that I do want to mention is I really admire the winter scoring system. I do think it's zany, like Jake is mentioning, just in terms of, contextualized within the Euro system. But for me, it's one of my favorite things about the game because it's asking a lot of me. And then I think it does give a lot back. Like when you plan for something and someone outbids you and you still find a way to bring a bunch of points out of that, that can feel really good. Or making the decision to play all three of yours, sort of saying it's going to be to my benefit. I've sort of planned for all three of these. I haven't, I'm going to invest a ton in the one that I know I can lock down um, that can feel great too. And I think it, it does potentially lead to some feel good moments, but I agree for, if you want a game where you can plan, it, it's tough. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. 
Okay. Pre-planners beware. Pre-planners beware indeed. Turn back now. So what do we have left? We have see what the peddler has for sale or check out the timber yard. Uh, uh, let's, uh, let's see what the peddler has for sale. Interesting. So that's going to be summer boats and variable player powers. Does that not kind of, do these not kind of tie together? How? The... What do you mean? Okay, what do you want to say? You want to okay. do the, the final... I see what you, you want to cover both in one. That's Yeah, that's what I want to do. I, see I just don't saying. want to leave it incomplete. You know, we've come this far on our yes. voyage across the Atlantic. I guess. That's, that's pull them both in. I'll let, okay. you, I'll let you frame the, the final discussion of what we're seeing what the peddler has for sale with. Okay. So the peddler has for sale, and what that has to do is summer boats and variable player powers because of course there are variable player powers in this game however they are not structured in a way that you might ex- so you might expect they're nothing like any other player powers you've ever experienced before in a game you're not dealt a player power at the beginning of the game that's going to shape your game instead at one singular point of the game uh the summer season which is the second round of play uh uh, one boat per player in the game will come out that offers a whole range of variable player powers, which you can bid on or not. One person might get all of the variable player powers in the game <laughs> at the expense of, you know, getting different tiles into their space or, or into their town or taking actions or whatever. And these are tiles like you might expect that break the game in some way. Uh, they might allow you to, uh, you know, use any color of workers to take action on spaces, not just the ones that you need to assign to it based on previously assigned workers, if that makes sense. Uh, and, or, or, you know, use any type of resource as wild, basically. Like all your resources are wild when you're upgrading instead of just specific ones. And how I think that ties in to the, the larger game is that that's just one the way in which all of the seasons are different. So summer is when the various well, player powers come out. Uh, winter is when the end game scoring comes out. Um, and and spring and fall are those just are those different in special ways too? Or are those kind of just like the punctuated base version of the game? I think they're the punctuated base version of the game for the most part. Fall has some of the locations like the timber yard where you get points for getting things onto it. And spring, the the first season of the game, is just like we're going to get all the tiles out that give you the access to the base resources. But there's definitely, yeah. So there are different tiles that come out per season. Yes, exactly. And, and, And the summer one is the boats, which are variable player powers. So, Brendan, what... What do you think about this? <laughs> I so honestly, Jake, this is a mechanism that when I have played at the table with players who are new to the game, I just don't include these tiles. Because really? I, I really do. I think this is I think it's a really cool mechanism, but it's I feel generally when I've been able to play Keyflower with n- new players to the game, I am asking a lot of them. The game is asking a lot of them, so I'll leave these boats out because it's just one more thing 
there's a lot of iconography in the game. And if you haven't played a lot of board games, or even if you have, some of it can be a little bit confusing, especially the Wainwrights with uh, moving of resources and upgrading them, wrapping your head around that system. The Why does this tile say I have to have resources on it to score, but this one I don't? And I think the boats create really cool moments, but none of them tell you what they do just by looking at it. You always have to go to the rule book to interpret what they do. And I think that leads to moments where players will just sort of ignore them because they don't want to be the one at the table who's like, okay, what does uh, uh, boat 2B over here do? <laughs> you know? And yeah. this one says all of it. And boat 2B, it turns out, doubles your transport capacity and upgrade. So whenever you, whenever you do that at the end of the game, your scoring on that vector is just doubled. But it's hard to know just by looking at it that, oh, that's actually saying my scoring capacity is doubled, right? Or that when I use a tile, it's doubled. So there's a lot here. I think these are really cool. They allow you to do interesting things. Breaking key rules in the game, key rules, is is interesting. Getting a green worker whenever you take your other workers is fun. That's powerful. It changes the power of certain tiles, but it's just... Jake, you mentioned like the thesis in some ways of Keyflower was like, what can't we fit in the game? And right. this to me is like one of the best examples of like, what can't we fit in the game? That's interesting. I actually have a different take on it because in some ways, like these boats are one of the things I've clinged on to as signposting, like in mm. the game, like if I'm able to get one of these boats that can sort of tell, like give me a much needed focal point. Like, oh, okay. Like I can... You rely on this to to you know get tiles that I need to transport around a lot, and like now I I have this thing that I can cling onto. Of course, the way that that is subverted so that it's not clear signposting, like it would be if maybe you started the game with one of these tiles, mm -hmm. is that you only get it if you bid for it at the halfway point of the game. So you can only use it for half the game anyway. So you're still like kind of lost at sea. At the for the first two rounds regardless um so yeah i mean it's interesting right because again like it's it's what we understand and expect variable player powers to be in a game but it's like subverted mm -hmm. in a way but the caveat there is like this game came before a lot of sure uh you know variable player powers in game as we experience them in, in more, you know, newer games, most more commonly, right? Where it'd be something you kind of get from the beginning or not included at all, uh, or at least have like access to knowledge of what might come out at the beginning of the game. Um, but it's hard to say that's like subverting the standard when in reality, like the standard maybe is just like innovated on this in a way that is more pleasing to more people. I think it's really interesting that they're thematically their boats, because boats play such a key role in the in the actual round and meeple injection systems, right? So you're, there's also boats that you're bidding for that give you meeples at the end of the game. So I found when I've included these with newer players, they're like, oh, there's more boats. Why, do these, what, why, why are there boats yeah. over here and here? And it, it's a mechanical reason, right? There's another tile that can come out that give you more points the more boats you have. So these have to be boats because you want to enable yet another strategy of, oh, maybe I'm just the boat, the boat guy. I'm the boat person. I go for lots of boats. I play. I, my goal is to get. It's a set collection game. We're collecting sets of boats. Yeah, um, and that works more at higher player powers. But that's a great example of like, did that really need to be in the game? No. Is it? Yes. Does it make it more interesting? Maybe. Um, but it it's a lot more to digest. I 
I definitely know that you've glommed onto these and enjoy them. And I, I think that's awesome. And I do love that aspect of the game. And I think it's cool how subversive some of them are and how powerful some of them feel without breaking the game. Yeah. Yeah. Big boats. Big boats. <laughs> so, well, so let's, yeah, I'll leave it to you. Oh, I was, that's kind of, I guess, maybe in that final part, just close with a discussion of the turn order bidding system, because I feel like that's a system that I haven't seen you interact with much, but I'd be yeah. curious to get your take on it. And I think that's a product of us mostly playing at two players. So not engaging with it hasn't really penalized you much. So it hasn't been a place to put your efforts. Is yeah. that, would you say that's fair? Yeah. And, and so the turn order bidding, right, is just that there's one tile that's available every round that gives you a purple first player marker, essentially, right? And then- Yes. And in higher player count games, there's additional tiles where you could bid for second or oh, third. Right. So because in it, like a six player game, it matters so much more, right? You don't want everyone piling up onto the going first and then just having it go clockwise because then I'm benefiting from the bids you made. So that's a Jake, you put down a really big bid on first player. Oh, well maybe I'll just settle for, I'll throw one or two meeples over to the second player tile marker and then we'll see how that shakes out i think it's it's go for, for it. the first player you know the player order bid to work you have to like want to do something yeah and i so often find myself like adrift at sea it's like maybe i want to do you know put some work take some actions or like i'm going for a certain tile but you also don't even know what tiles are going to come out when you're making that bid so, I mean, I get for sure, you know, it's definitely important. And if, if we were playing primarily at six players or five players, I think you could intuit the reason why you might want that a lot more. And sometimes I have been frustrated if I'm the second person and I just like flip over a good tile, mm. you know, I upgrade it. And then your first move is to like, just use it. And I'm just like, well, crap, like that's super <laughs> annoying. I don't like that. Uh, you know, so that's, it's, I guess it's nice that it enables that, but. Yeah, I, I think like for that to feel like a meaningful decision, you either have to like really have a strong understanding of like the possibilities in the next age or playing at a high player count. Yeah, I think that that's all fair. It does also allow you to choose your boat at the end of the round first. So that's another way in which if a boat comes out and you're, you're really invested in blue or you want to be really invested in blue meeples, you would maybe bid a bunch of a uh, different color to go for blue. So you could get a ton to really activate a worker placement slot in your village. Because if you get a lot of meeples of one color, one, it makes you more predictable in the auction bidding system, but it does actually allow you to overproduce a certain type of uh, resource if you have a tile that does that. For example, there's a tile in the game that when upgraded gives you one of each type of resource. And then there's a game in scoring condition that gives you five points for every one of each resource in a set that you have. So that's an example where maybe I'd want to bid on first player so I could get a boat with a lot of blue. So I could go into winter with eight blue, knowing I'd be able to activate that tile for three, no, still only th three times, which is still pretty good. Cause I go one, then two blue, then three blue, that gets me to six. And then if I had four blue, I could go to 10 and activate it another time. But that's really the only way in which something like that could strongly incentivize. Right. The blocking also, the fact that the game allows you to choose how much you're blocking, I think is interesting, but not necessarily fun. 
Jake mentioned it earlier. He upgraded. I was the green meeples are really powerful. We haven't discussed them very much, but because they're a meeple, a worker placement color or an, a Reese currency that you only get through activating, there's a few numbers. So sometimes just using those to bid for something will help you win a tile outright. So Jake like got a tile that uh, created green meeples, upgraded it, and I was like, great, I'll just put two meeples on this and block Jake. So if he's going to use the tile, it has to be super suboptimal. Sub he has to play three meeples to it to get two. And it just... That was like my first play, right? It so was it's like, Jake's first play. And it's like, it's such a... Right, like that is such a kind of a nuanced interaction, right? Where it's <laughs> it so mean, hard. I'm to, sorry. Like, you're just like, okay, like what the heck is going on here? Okay, I can't... Like one of the few things I can like understand about this game is like it costs this much to upgrade this tile and then you do it and it and it might have even been like the second to last round when I did it so that like so I like I do it and I was like oh wow like upgrading that tile because that one is such a powerful action or whatever it doesn't actually give you points to upgrade it as many to and so I was like I managed to like do something productive in the game that was like strictly wrong <laughs> like strictly <laughs> hurt me uh which i mean it's it fine like and it right that but that just kind of like shows like how difficult it is to interact with these systems on the first time because there's just so much going on also on the boats you might get a tool which is like another type of like currency that like <laughs> exists alongside all these other systems. There's like three types of tools in the game that you might collect for end of game scoring, or maybe you need it to like upgrade a specific tile. And it's just kind of like, yeah, like sometimes I might care about a tool because like I on a, on a boat and I I need it to like upgrade one of my tiles. But yeah, it just feels like I've I've rarely cared at all about in any of our plays so far about which of the two boats I get at the beginning of the game. And I feel like to really care a lot, it again, it's like, it's like the designer saying like, okay, yeah, people are going to really care about this because of some understanding of the supply of workers from other players. Mm. Right. If I know how many of each color you have, then I care a lot more about what type of like boat I'm getting but without that, which I think like realistically is a huge ask of the designer, it just seems like, again, certainly there's important decisions to make there. I know that. I sense that. But I'm usually just like don't care or just like so slightly care that it's just like another way where the game is presenting me interesting choices, but they aren't particularly fun to make. I think that's really well put, Jake. I, I feel like for me... In terms of closing thoughts, the enigma of Keyforge really is is that it's Keyflower. Oh gosh, dang it! <laughs> Give me the tools to fix my speech. The interesting thing about Keyflower is that it's exactly the type of game that I would like to recommend everyone play once, but it's the sort of game that I could never recommend anyone play only once. And that internal contradiction makes it such a weird little design and creature and beast that lives on your shelf. That I feel like if that is interesting to you, maybe you should check it out and see if this auction bidding, worker placement, village building, logistics puzzle game works for you and excites you or teaches you something about decisions. And if it doesn't at all, turn back now. There's nothing for you here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that is 
similar to my kind of final thoughts. Like when when I was thinking about my impression of the game, I just thought about the fact that a lot of times, you know, if I click on board game arena, I'm like, ooh, it's your turn at like a two tables. And like, sweet, like maybe it'll get to like make a move in Arnak. Like that would be fun. And it's like key flower i'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) and like you know that's maybe not like totally fair to the game but you know every time when i was when i take my turns in a game like arnak i'm like this is like fun like i'm doing something cool and when i'm taking turns in key flower and you know this maybe speaks as much or more to the situation in which I was playing this primarily asynchronously on board game arena, then it does have the game itself. It was just like, huh? Like I have to like, really like puzzle over everything like anew, and ultimately like make a choice without ever really feeling like I was making like a smart decision or not. Mm. And it just kind of the, the experience left me wanting like, uh, I, you know, I'm glad that this game exists. I obviously a lot of people love it, but it's just not one I personally am really excited about with the caveat that I would play it again. If it, if I had the opportunity to play it in person, just to try like the uh, rules variant where playing with scene meeples, like that might be fun and maybe it would change my perspective on the game. So if Jake and I ever get to play games together and we find the opportunity to play Keyflower, we'll do an update episode and let you all know, but no promises. And it sounds like Jake, doesn't really like what the peddler has for sale. I'm sorry, man. I know you <laughs> love it. I feel bad. No, it's good. I I thought this was an awesome episode, and we'd love to know what you think. Uh, if you've made it to the end of the episode, you are a fan of Decision Space, most likely, perhaps not. Uh, if you have feedback of any form, Jake and I would love to interact with you and hear it. We're always looking to grow the show, and you can find more on Decision Space at on Twitter at at Decision Spa, come hang out in the Decision SPA with us. Uh, that's the handle there. Or on Board Game Geek, we have a blog post every week in our blog, uh, also the same name, Decision Space. And there's a Discord, which you yeah. can find the link to in the show notes. Discord, if you've never heard of it, is kind of like uh, uh, it's like a forum, basically like a all-encompassing active chat form thing. Uh, it's, it's it's fine. It's fun. Yeah, it's awesome. And there was some really great discussion about our last episode on being good at games. So I highly recommend. I have a great time popping our Discord, chatting with people. Um, the community is much, awesome. Pretty much every day. So highly recommend if that sounds interesting at all to you, they check it out. Uh, so yeah, this has been an episode of Decision Space. See you in Bruges. You are now exiting the Decision Space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game.